apart a little bit as they're fixing the service, uh, as well as when we started screening jobs and we're doing our lights this week, those are famous ones over there already. Um, and we're going to focus our attention a little bit uh, this morning uh, on Christmas as well uh, in our sermon. But we're going to do so today in our normal study of the book of Micah. Uh, so if you would please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Micah. It's kind of right in the middle of your Bibles we are not uh, ashamed, we're not proud. If you don't know where it is, the table of contents has been given as a gift from heaven above um, for you to uh, find these books that we're not as familiar with. But we're going to be taking our time today to look at Micah chapter 7. It's where we've left off. And we're going to finish the book. And you know what that means for the end of our time together today. Uh, so we're excited about that and eagerly looking forward to Some of you that are newer here are thinking... Oh boy, I'm not sure what that is, but you'll figure it out and you'll be fine. Uh, and those of you at home, get ready to open your windows and, and let the world know. Uh, so that should be fun. Let's pray together. Uh, it feels like we could really use some prayer this morning. Father, we, we pray for uh, you to bless our time. Lord, uh, again, I, am, I was just moved uh, by some of these Christmas carols that we've heard for years. Maybe even we sung them and we... Uh, you know, we, we listen to them on the radio and all these things, but uh, to sit and to consider the words and to do so with a group of other brothers and sisters around us and, Lord, just to uh, lift our voices before you in worship, uh, just to really take in, Lord, what these words mean, Lord, is just so good for our hearts. Lord, you, you tell us to gather together, and Lord, even for those that are at home, Lord, you, you call us together for our good. You know what we need, and you know how, Lord, good it is for our hearts uh, to lift up your voice with others, or to lift up our voices to you with others. And so, Lord, we ask that you were blessed just as even as we were blessed. And, Father, you've been gracious to give us your word as well, Lord, that we might know you in a, a clearer and deeper uh, way. And so we pray that once more, Lord, you would use your word, Lord, in, in our hearts, in the deep places of our hearts, and you'd bless our time together uh, as a result of our coming together. And so we submit ourselves to you, we look for the leading of your spirit, and we pray the prayer, this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me remind you just quickly as we're bringing our book to our close, uh, the book of Micah was written by a fellow whose name was Micah. Um, about the year 750, 740, 730, something like that B.C., um, so 700 years or so before Jesus, about 10 years or so before the coming Assyrian captivity, that's when the enemy empire of Assyria attacked the northern kingdom, and it was about 100 years or so before the Babylonian kingdom came in, that empire came in and attacked Israel's southern kingdom. Uh, so Micah is prophesying about these coming captivities, judgments that are going to come upon the Jewish people, first against the north and then against the south. And Micah is sent as a voice to warn. He's one of many voices that have been sent to the Jewish people over this period of two, three hundred years to warn them that if they don't forsake their sin, God's going to bring a judgment to turn them from their sin. That's always his desire is to turn them from their sin, not to get even with them, not to punish them. This is what you brought on yourself but to turn them, to bring them to their senses. 
And God over from about the time of Solomon, even before that during the times of the judges, but during the time of King Solomon, which we'll just put around the year 1000, God had been sending these prophets to call the people back to themselves. And many times they would return, but then they'd descend back into their sin. And then God would bring judgment, lesser forms of judgment, just to sort of bring them to their senses. Finally, as the Lord said in the book of Deuteronomy, the final judgment that he would bring would be to take them out of the land and to send them into captivity. And that's what Micah is prophesying about, that coming captivity. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Micah can't help also prophesy about something else. So he's looking into the future. He's a prophet. He's looking into the future, and he's seeing in the near this coming judgment. But at the same time, God is giving him a revelation, a vision of what comes beyond that judgment. So there's the near judgment, but then there's also the far deliverance. And Micah has been uh, awakened to the idea that there will come what I've referred to as a repentant remnant, a group of Jewish people in the far that will recognize who Christ is, repent of their sins, and be brought back into the land uh, into that glorious time. And we call that glorious time the millennial kingdom. And so Mike has been talking about all of these things. He's also been using a technique in which sometimes he writes in his own voice. These are his ideas, thoughts, so to speak, that God has given to him. Uh, sometimes he writes in the voice of God himself. This is what the Lord is saying to some people. And then other times he writes in the voice of the people of Israel. Sometimes not so good when Israel is defending themselves. We're not so bad. We're just like the rest of the nations around us. And other times when they're from the perspective of that repentant remnant, recognizing their sin. Here, as we come to chapter 7, and we've already looked at some of the verses of chapter 7, we have Micah writing from the perspective of that repentant remnant. So if you go back to verse 1 and look, Notice how that repentant remnant of Jewish people in the future glorious kingdom, notice what they begin. They say, woe is me. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. The idea is the, the field has been stripped bare. And they begin with the words, woe is me. They, this repentant remnant can say, woe is me, because they recognize their sin, and they recognize the judgment that has come upon them. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, they express how low the society has sunk into depravity. They even come up with the phrase that the godly has perished from the earth. Can't find a single one. Of course, there, there were a few here and there scattered, but from their perspective, there's not even a single one. The godly has perished from the earth. Verse 3 and 4, they talk about the corruption of their leaders, their politicians and their religious leaders, and the way in which they're asking for bribes and the like. In verses 5 and 6, they say that it's gotten so bad that even the natural affections that a person feels for their family members or a person feels for their friends has uh, perished from the earth as well. And what's the response of these repentant uh, remnant or this repentant remnant? The response is that God was totally justified in all of these things. He was totally justified in bringing judgment against them. There's no defending it. There's no arguing. We're not, we're not worse than other people. None of these things. It was a total recognition. God, you were right. You were right to judge the nation for these particular sins. They admit 
the sin of the nation, and they agree that God's judgment upon the nation was in righteousness, we'll say. It was what God should have done. Now, that's what we looked at last week. So that brings us, or at least a portion of last week, that brings us to where we left off. And if you look at verse 7, even though they're recognizing that God is just in bringing judgment, you'll notice in verse 7, he says, but as for me, as for us, if it's a group of them, we will look to the Lord. And we will wait for the God of our salvation, our God will hear us. And so, yes, God, your judgment is just, but notice it's not without hope. Throughout this whole process, they recognize God is going to do what God is going to do. God is going to do what God needs to do, that is, judge the Jewish people. But they're looking at that as not without hope. And so rather than God's judgment driving them away from God, as you might expect, Notice it drives them to God. It drives them to this place of hope. And what is it that they're hoping in? They're hoping in the goodness of God. So God has used his judgment to accomplish his purposes. I think sometimes as parents, as we're trying to make decisions on raising our children and disciplining our children, sometimes we're afraid to discipline them or ground them or because they're not going to like me anymore. Or they're not going to be into it. They're just going to rebel and they're going to turn from me. And what many of us have discovered, what many of us know, even from when we were children, is we respect our parents when they discipline us, when they guide us, when they teach us. Same thing within a society. And so it accomplishes its purposes. It doesn't drive them away. It draws them to you as a learning experience. Here it says, well, I'm saying that the judgment brought this repentant remnant to their senses. You remember the prodigal son and the way in which the difficulties he was experiencing, the natural consequences of his sin that he was experiencing brought him to his senses. That's what God has done here. He's brought these folks. Look at verse 7. He brought them to the place where they would look to the Lord and where they would wait upon the Lord for their salvation. And I think most significant, look at the end of verse 7. They brought all of this confident that God would hear them. Isn't that something? This is really a remarkable chapter, particularly as we get a little further in the chapter to consider uh, who, I'm so excited, I'm going to roll my sleeves up, Uh, considering who the Lord is and the context of the judgment that is coming upon Israel, it really, you'll you'll see as we get a little further here. So as we continue now in verse 8, I'm going to read verses 8 through 9. It says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Now, the people of Israel, they're the ones speaking. Remember, I I said the repentant remnant is speaking. Previously, they were speaking essentially to the Lord, or they were just really speaking out in general this truth. Here now, they're going to shift who it is they're speaking to. Same group speaking, different person that they're speaking to, or group of people that they're speaking to. Here, they're going to address those that had been persecuting them, or specifically, those that had rejoiced over the judgment that had been coming upon them. And so notice they say, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. 
And so they address that group, they tell that group, don't rejoice over our suffering. And the reason why they do, essentially, is they say, because we're not going to be forever down. You're looking at us as our enemies. You're looking at the misery that we are going through. You're mocking us. You're laughing at us. You're rejoicing over us. Don't do that, they say, because we will not be forever down. Notice what they say in verse 9. They, they say, look, this is clearly the indignation of the Lord, but Micah is confident of God's coming vindication. And so God is judging them, yes. God is using the enemy nations to accomplish that judgment, Yes, but God will vindicate them uh, in the long run. His indignation, if you will, will come to an end. So this people, the Jewish people, they know that it was their own sin that brought this judgment upon them. Verse 9, he says, or they say, because I have sinned against him. So they recognize that truth. But at the same time, they recognize the truth that the Lord has not abandoned them forever. Because as he goes on in verse 9, he speaks to the fact that, they would, that God would plead their cause and that he would execute judgment on their behalf, he says there. And so going back to the enemy, he says, don't rejoice over me, enemy. Verse 10, he says, then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled, the she there being his enemy. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So again, God would use Assyria and Babylon and the Romans in history and all of those other empires in world history. God would use them to accomplish his purposes of disciplining the Jewish people. But now God's going to judge them. And the reason why is Assyria is being used by God to accomplish his purposes but they sure did enjoy that process. They delighted in the fact that they could persecute and torture the Jewish people. And the Babylonians did the same, and the Romans did the same, and all of the other people groups throughout history did the same. God used them to accomplish his purposes, but they delighted in the opportunity of inflicting cruel and barbarous treatment against the Jewish people. And now they're going to be held accountable for that. I'm reminded in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking to Judas. And he essentially says to Judas, like, it was predicted before that you would come. You have a purpose for what you're doing to betray me. But woe unto him who betrays me. And so he accomplished God's purposes, but he was still held responsible for that which he did. And the same thing is going down here with the people of Assyria or Babylon, the enemies of the Jewish people. The Lord is now going to execute judgment on them for the great delight that they took in executing judgment on the Jewish people. Those were the nations, as he says in verse 10, that previously mocked the Jews. And they say, look at verse 10, where is the Lord your God? This is what you need, right? In the midst of your life's difficulties, you need somebody to come up on side of you, come to the side of you and say, where's your God? How's he going to help you? I think of some of those examples in our studies of the book of First and Second Kings. You think your God is going to be able to deliver you? None of the other gods of the other nations were able to deliver them. What makes you think your God is any better? And so here is Israel being mocked by these people. Where is the Lord your God? But as he says in verse 10, it says, She will now be trampled down like the mire in the streets. 
God's judgment upon Israel has come to an end. And now it will shift from disciplining Israel to disciplining those nations that delighted in persecuting Israel. Micah says here, speaking on behalf of the Jewish people, he says, don't mock us any longer. Now we go to verse 11, and the speaker changes. So it's not the repentant remnant any longer. Again, this is Micah's technique. Sometimes it's him speaking, sometimes it's God speaking, sometimes it's a group of people speaking. And here in verse 11, it transitions. It's no longer Israel speaking, it's now the Lord speaking once more. And he picks up where Israel left off. Now Israel left off looking forward to the day when the judgment that was coming upon them would cease and they would be restored. Now the Lord chimes in and addresses that restoration. And so it's like we're having a conversation and they're talking about a point and the Lord says, well, let me add a point to that about this future restoration. And in verse 11, they speak of a day, as it says, for the building of their walls and the expansion of the nation's boundary. Again, I'll read it to you properly. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, we've seen this a number of times, this phrase in our study of Micah, it's referring to that glorious day, the day of restoration. He says, in that day, notice, the nations are going to come to Israel. Look at verse 12. I'll read it to you. In that day, they'll come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. So the nations will come from Assyria. Now, Assyria was to the north of Israel. It doesn't matter how far the idea is from the north. And the cities of Egypt, well, Egypt was to the south. And so Micah is here, the Lord really, is saying, in that day the nations will come from the north to the south. He says that they're going to come from Egypt uh, to the southwest. So it says, and from Egypt to the river. The river is almost certainly speaking of the Euphrates River. So Egypt is the southwest. The Euphrates River is from, if you will, the northeast. And so he's saying from north to south, from east to west, the nations will come to Israel. In that day, he says in verse 13, that the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. But Israel, and I'm adding this based on the context, but Israel will be restored. Its walls will be rebuilt. Its boundaries will be extended. As we see here, the nation of Israel will be restored and will thrive in that day, again, in that day, referring to the glorious reign of Christ on the earth, we call that the millennium. So once more, Micah has done what so many of the other minor prophets, and I think this is our sixth book of the minor prophets that we've considered together over the last few years. And Micah has done once more what all the other, or many of the other minor prophets has done, and that is he's looked past the near judgment, that was his immediate job of what he had come to do, And he looks beyond, thousands of years into the future, of the glorious restoration. The time when Israel will be restored, where Christ will reign on the earth, and he will do so in righteousness. And as he's pointing out, in that days, Israel's enemies will be defeated. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The borders of the nation will be extended, even beyond what they ever were in that day. Verse 14 goes on. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead 
as in the days of old. I don't know this for certain, and I was trying to dig into it a little. I think this is the, the father speaking to the son about his responsibility for the next thousand years. Shepherd your people with your staff. Rule over them. Reign over them in righteousness. In the midst of, the, of a garden of the land. Let them graze in Bashan, land of Israel. Uh, and in Gilead, land of Israel, as they did in the days of old. The father saying, bring your people back. Gather them up once more so that they can be restored to the land. Continuing the Lord, notice he promises that in that day, those days leading up to the millennium, he's going to do marvelous things. Another way of saying miracles. Remember how he brought them out of the land of Egypt? We study that in the book of Exodus, how God delivered an enslaved people from a mighty empire, the world's mightiest empire at the time. And the way in which the Lord did that, it wasn't the strength of the Jewish people, of the slaves. It was God's miraculous work, miracle after miracle after miracle, until finally the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, said, get out, go. We don't want you here anymore. Leave our land. And they did with all the gifts of the people of Egypt. Take our gold, take our silver, just get out of the land here. The Lord did that. It was a marvelous thing that he did. And Micah says here, the Lord speaking, he would do as he did marvelous things in the past, so he will do marvelous things in that day. Look at verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. He goes on in verse 16. And those who previously despised and hated the Jew, whether it was the Assyrian, the Babylonian, Roman, whatever, they will be ashamed of their actions, he says. He talks about them laying their hand upon their mouths, like in shock almost at what is going on, at how the tables have turned now against them. So verse 16 says, the nations will see and will be ashamed of all their might. They will lay their hands on their mouths, their ears will be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth, and they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. So again, the tables have turned against those who were once so mighty that they could persecute the Jewish people. Now they themselves are experiencing the consequences of their sin. Well, now we come to the final portion of the book of Micah, the last three verses. I think some of the sweetest words of Scripture. And frankly, the reason why I thought that, I, some of you are probably thinking, this doesn't feel like a Christmas message. I feel like you duped me. Uh, you brought me here for a Christmas message, and you're not talking very much about Christmas. It's these last three verses that I think really point to what we celebrate on December 25th. The final portion of the prophecy of Micah. Now let me set it up a little bit for you in the context of the whole book. Throughout this book, Micah has demonstrated the supremacy of God in a few different areas. That God is unlike anyone on the earth, any nation of people, any individual, any pro anything. God is so much greater than any of those. The supremacy of God in a variety of different areas. The first area that we've considered is the supremacy of God in his judgment. And by that, I don't, I don't simply mean that, man, God judges and nobody can match that judgment. What, what I'm referring to also is in his wisdom, that God could bring judgment, which you would expect would drive people away from him, and yet in the use of that judgment causes people to return to him. 
So the supremacy of God in his judgment, that in his wisdom and righteousness, he would use that judgment to accomplish his purposes. That's the first thing that Micah has demonstrated throughout this book. The second thing that we have seen, and we saw it at the end of the first sermon, which was chapters 1 and 2, we saw at the end of the second sermon, which in our Bibles is chapters 3, 4, and 5, and we see it again in this last set of studies, chapter 6 and 7, and that's the supremacy of God, supremacy of God in his deliverance. And so he showed us the way in which he would bring his people back to the land, restore his people to the land, and restore them once more to their fortunes in the land. Not just financially, but God's blessing I'm referring to. So God is supreme in his judgment. God is supreme in his deliverance. And as we come now to these final few verses of the book of Micah, we're going to see that while God is indeed supreme in those other two areas, this is perhaps the greatest character trait of the Lord, at least the one that we enjoy to embrace the most, and that is that God is supreme in his forgiveness. Notice what it says in verse 18. These are wonderful words. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He delights not, he, excuse me, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so once more now, in these final verses, Micah has returned to the voice of the people. This is the repentant remnant that is speaking here. These are not the Israelites that defended their sin. These are not the Israelites that critiqued the Lord for his judgment. We read about them earlier on in our study. This is the repentant remnant. Again, the ones that have acknowledged their sin, acknowledged that they deserved God's judgment upon their sin, but at the same time, look beyond that judgment in hope that the Lord would restore. So they're not, self -arrog they're not arrogant, they're not self-righteous, but they're repentant, which is where God would have us to be. These are men and women who have been humbled under God's hand and at the same time have come to experience the cleansing mercy and forgiveness of the Lord. Let's look at some of their words in closer detail. You'll notice how he begins in verse 18. He says, who is a God like you? The name Micah means, if, if translated, who is a God like Yahweh? And so essentially what Micah does is he, he makes a play on his own name. He says, who is a God like Yahweh? Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. And so the book that bears his name ends by asking the question posed by his name. And again, and again, the answer is there is no one like our God. There's no one like our God that pardons iniquity as our God pardons iniquity. There's no one like our God passing over transgression as our God passes over transgression. Think of the religions of the world, both those that exist today and those that have existed in history. And think about how sin is dealt with in those religions. 
It's always some form of you do these particular things, crawl to the top of some mountain and sacrifice a goat up there for me or sacrifice a human up there for me, or it's something that perhaps seemingly benign, give enough of yourself in good deeds and your sin will be forgiven. We'll balance it out, we'll weigh it out. It, it all comes down to something you do. And yet, who is a God like ours that says you can't do anything? Go over on the side, let me do what I need to do. I'll go to a cross on your, in your stead. Who is a God like ours? Pardoning iniquity as our God pardons iniquity. Passing over transgression as our God passes over transgression. I thought this was so helpful. That phrase there, passing over, which you see there in that little sentence, passing over transgression, it's a word which means to migrate, migrate past something. It means to cross over in the way that one would cross over a bridge or something like that. And so I think that's really helpful because our Lord doesn't ignore our sin. And that's really important because if God ignored our sin, God wouldn't be righteous and holy. If God just sort of looked at you and said, well, you know what, all right, I see you're trying. Don't worry about it. And just let it go. That would speak to the unholiness of God, the unrighteousness of God, that sin isn't really sin in his holy presence. But our Lord doesn't ignore sin but he does move past our sin. He crosses the bridge, so to speak. Micah continues. He says that he does not retain his anger forever. But you'll notice it says he rather delights in steadfast love. Maybe your Bible says mercy. He delights to show mercy. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Our God is the God of forgiveness. And he excels at forgiveness, even as he does in all of his other attributes. Remember what Micah is doing. He's pointing out the supremacy of God in judgment, the supremacy of God in deliverance. And now he's pointing out the supremacy of God far beyond any other God in forgiveness. He concludes with two precious assurances. Number one, he says, he will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Promise there that he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. The closer you get to God, the further you realize you are from the Lord. How your sin, how much sin there is. You know, you've heard the maybe the expression of, you know, if you're in a dimly lit room and you pull out a shirt and you're like, yeah, it looks clean. It's good. And then you get out into the bright light or you get under some of these new lights that are out there and all of a sudden you see all the stains that are on it. The closer you get to the light, the closer you get to the Lord, the greater the revelation of just how sinful you actually are. But the Lord doesn't ignore your sin. He deals with your sin. And he says here that he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Number two, he God will show, he says here, that God will show faithfulness to his covenant that he has made. First with, well, he says here first in our list, with Jacob, which again, a.k.a. Israel, and also Jacob's father, Israel's father, Abraham. So he says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers 
from the days of old. So again, did Israel deserve the judgment that was coming upon them? Absolutely. No doubt about it. They even admit it as uh, the scenario goes on. They deserved what came against them. The Lord repeatedly sent prophets to them. He repeatedly sent lesser forms or, or gradually greater forms of judgment to them. But in that, they continued to persist in their sin. And I remind you, it was quite serious sin. It was sin which involved even the sacrificing of their own children to foreign deities. That's a pretty serious sin. And so they deserved the judgment that had come upon them. But despite all of that, and despite their deserving judgment, the Lord says, in faithfulness to his covenant of old, and because of the fact that he delights to show mercy, that he would pass over their transgression and he would pardon their iniquity. How amazing. And I really mean that. Here we are, it's the Sunday before Christmas. And so we focus our hearts once more on the coming of Christ at his first coming. And of course, it's familiar material to us, even if we're not Christians. As Americans, it's probably familiar material to a lot of us. So we know the angel's announcement. We know that the virgin shall conceive. We, we remember about the royal census, which forced uh, Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. We know that there was no room in the inn. We're familiar with the foggy Christmas night and the need for Rudolph's nose to guide their way. We're familiar with these things. For the most part, we're familiar with the what, the details, the facts. The why of all these things sometimes becomes a little bit harder for us to be able to articulate. So we understand, again, the particulars of the story, but maybe we're not as adept as the reason for the story. And what every Christmas season provides for us as Christians, people that are serious about who the Lord is, and we're, we're digging in his word, and we're, we're trying to understand what he has for us, not just at Christmas time and not just at Easter time, but every day, every moment of the day. We want to walk with him. We want to know him. We want to fellowship with him. We want him to deal with our sin areas and put them aside so that we can walk in the righteousness and the plan that he has for us. We're, we're hungry for him. What Christmas does and what every Christmas season does is it provides for us an opportunity to go back and remind ourselves for the reason of his first coming. And so we considered this morning, I wanted to consider three questions with you relatively briefly. The questions are, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? And what will happen when Jesus comes again? Let's look at the first question. Why did Jesus come? Well, we remind ourselves that Jesus came to this world as a man that was on a mission. You recall when Jesus was only 12 years of age that he reminded his mother that he must be about his father's business. He came as a man, in that case a boy, on a mission. Later on, when Jesus was older, we hear him declare that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us that. In the final days of his life, as he set out from Galilee to make his way to Jerusalem, where he would be crucified, which he knew was coming down, we read that he set his face, set his face, he was determined, he was resolute to go to Jerusalem so that he could accomplish 
what he had come to do. Jesus came to this earth as a man on a mission. Now that leads us then to the second question about him going to Jerusalem to do what he had to do. The second question is why did Jesus come, or excuse me, why did Jesus have to die? So again, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem because it was there in Jerusalem that would occur, what would occur was exactly what he had come to occur. That would be the place where his mission for coming would be fulfilled. It would be in Jerusalem where Jesus would give his life for others. It would be in Jerusalem where the one without sin would give his life on behalf of those that were full of sin, like the Israelites of old who were nonetheless pardoned, you and I, full of sin. But the one without sin paid the price for those of us that were full of sin. You recall all the way back in the beginning of our Bibles, God spoke to Adam, and he told Adam that he could have any of the trees of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you shouldn't eat of that tree. He says, for if you eat of that tree on that day, you will surely die. Genesis 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. So to eat of that tree would be in direct defiance of God's command to them. To eat of that tree would, to make, would be to make the deliberate decision that they were going to give themselves to sin. And as Paul would say in the New Testament, that the price of sin, the penalty of sin, is death. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. Now, if you've read that account in Genesis, first three, four chapters of our Bibles, if you've read that account, you know that Adam and Eve did not immediately, physically die. Their, their story, their life history, it continues to be recorded for us here. But they did begin to die. So they didn't immediately die physically, but they began to die physically and eventually would. Those who previously would have lived forever began to experience the physical ramifications of their decision until that decision would ultimately take their life. Now that's a relatively okay explanation, but the text does say, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The death, therefore, being spoken of, it must be something other than the physical death that you and I primarily think of when we think of death. The death that is being spoken of, it's seen in the next chapter of the book of Genesis, where we read that Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden. And what was their response? They ran and they hid themselves. Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now the Lord would press them. They had never hid from the Lord before. They walked with the Lord. They enjoyed fellowship with the Lord. Talks about in the cool of the day, just this sweet fellowship time that they had with the Lord, and yet now they're hiding from him, and they're pressed on it. By the Lord, why are you hiding? And Adam's response in Genesis chapter 3.10 is, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. That was the death 
that was foretold if Adam and Eve should take of the fruit of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the death. That was the separation. Death is separation. We know the pain. Many of us in our nation are experiencing it this year like we never anticipated experiencing it. We know the pain of death. Death is separation. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve experienced for the first time spiritual separation from God. And so whereas previously they enjoyed fellowship with the Lord, they could come before the Lord, they were completely unhindered and exposed before the Lord, and there was nothing of them to be ashamed of or to hide from, so to speak. Now something had come between them. Something had caused a break in their relationship with God. And that something was sin. And that sin in their life and in this world would only get worse and worse and worse, driving the wedge of divide deeper and deeper and deeper between God and man until, guess, Jesus came. That should have been an easy one, friends. It's the Sunday before Christmas. Until Jesus came. Because as we have already seen, Jesus came to this earth as a man on a mission. You remember during our study of the book of Mark, how frequently we came back to that phrase that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, would come to this earth and pay our price in, his, in our place. He who had no sin for which he had to pay could satisfactorily, satisfactorily pay the price that each one of us could not pay. Again, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Properly quoted, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means Jesus Christ died in our place. And because he did, we can finish up that partial verse I stated earlier, the wages of sin is death, there's a comma, not a period, at the end of that. That verse continues on, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. The eternal life that Adam and Eve forfeited with their disobedience can now become ours because of Jesus' obedience. And so how can we not recall to mind the verse that we considered earlier here in the book of Micah? Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, and passing over transgression. Which brings us now to the final question that I posed. What will happen when Jesus Christ comes again? There are over 1,500 passages that either speak directly to or allude to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, he said, I will come again and I will take you, disciples, to myself that where I am you may be also. You recall in the book of Acts when Jesus was ascending into heaven and the disciples were standing there looking up into the heavens as Christ was departing from them. Two angels came, appeared to those disciples and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. That means he'll, be, he'll return in the heavens. The Bible is clear. Jesus Christ will come a second time. 
Now, in his first coming, he came in humility. A peasant child, born in a lowly stable, and placed in a feeding trough of some barnyard animals. But in his second coming, he will come in his royal robes as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' first coming, he came forth as a suffering servant who would give his life on behalf of others. In his second coming, he will come forth as a conquering king who will establish his reign on the earth in righteousness. In his first coming, he did a work in the hearts of men that would flow from those men and impact the world around them. He did a work in our hearts. He's changing us. We become different people and we impact the world that is around us for good. In Jesus' second coming, he will reign over the world around them and he will instill righteousness upon the earth for a thousand years and even for all eternity. Jesus Christ came to set right what was made wrong back in the garden 6,000 years ago. Jesus came the first time and he will come the second time to fix what was made wrong by sin. And so whether it was made wrong in our individual hearts that he deals with as we receive him into our lives or what was made wrong throughout our world and humanity, Jesus' coming, both his first and his second, will make right what had been made wrong by sin. When Jesus Christ returns, evil will be defeated. Isn't that exciting? Oh, thank God. Our earth will be restored, and the Lord will win, and he will reign for all eternity. That's the testimony of Scripture. Jesus' first coming is only the beginning of that process. And as followers of Christ, even as we consider his first coming in humility, we're reminded of the reason for which he came, which transfers us, whatever. It moves us to his second coming. And our hearts long for that long-awaited, full restoration of the earth to his righteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas. Chew on that a little bit as you open up your gifts this particular year. Hopefully you have many. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that reality. And Lord, it is easy, easy to get sidetracked with all the hubbub of Christmas and all that's going on and cute little baby Jesus and manger scenes and all these kinds of things. And Lord, certainly uh, there would have been no cross if there wasn't first the coming forth of a man, uh, God in the flesh. And so we rejoice in all those things. But even as you've done a work within us, Lord, you've created within us this longing for righteousness to rule and reign, not only in our own lives, but over this entire earth. Lord, we've all been sort of in that place where we're just humming along with you and we're loving you and we're being impacted by you and touched by you. And then we just sort of come into the presence of the sin of this world and that does sort of a stirring work with the sin that still remains in our hearts and it causes us to cry out, oh, Jesus, come. And we don't say come just because we want it to be over. 
We say come because we want your righteousness to reign upon this earth. So Lord, do a greater stirring work within us. Calls us to long for heaven even more. Bless this Christmas this year in each one of our hearts and use us, Lord, in the lives of other people to point them to something greater than happy feelings and Christmas gifts and cookies and all the things that we celebrate with down here on the earth. And we pray that in your name. Amen. <clears throat>